Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Language Classroom, a branded podcast brought to you by Fuel Education. Fuel Education partners with school districts to fuel personalized learning and transform the education experience inside and outside the classroom. The company provides innovative solutions for pre-K through 12th grade that empower districts to implement successful online and blended learning programs. I'm your host, Andréanne King. The Language Classroom is a podcast about world languages, education, and how to design the best program and activities for your classroom. We are here to be your guide on the nitty-gritty of what makes a language classroom successful. How can you get your students to speak more? get better results. In our episode, we will take you step-by-step step to create your very own language program using the latest pedagogy and design techniques available. Think of it as free professional development that you can listen to in your car or out on a walk. With each episode, you will also be able to access free downloadable content related to the topic of the episode by going to resources.fueleducation.com forward slash podcast. Each episode will come with a PowerPoint providing some visual support, explaining the concepts of the theme, and some templates and resources to help you in the creation of your language program. Today, we will discuss how to scaffold activities using authentic material and do a deep dive in grammar instruction. I'll help you find interesting ways to broach a subject that can sometimes be pretty dry. Let's start with a quick recap on authentic materials. In the last episode, we learned that authentic material is content created for native speakers of a language that hasn't been modified for language learners. Authentic material can be videos, audio files, print, articles, all sorts of content that provides information in the first language, along with some cultural support. If you think of printed publicity you can see in the subway in China, those are prime examples of authentic material, as they have been created to appeal and interface with first language speakers, and are also pulling from all sorts of cultural elements to be relevant. In some cases, you might see example of humor that connects with the native speakers, some popular celebrities, cartoon characters, or graphics that are in trend, but also slogans and vocabulary, which is used in daily life. All those elements make this type of authentic material a great resource for classroom instruction. What is not an authentic material? Well, anything that has been rephrased or changed to be understood by native speakers. Scripted conversations filmed and made to look like real interactions. Content created by the teacher for the students. Workbook, text, and articles that explain how speakers of a certain language are. You see the point here. I'm not saying that those materials are bad and shouldn't be used in the classroom, but they're not authentic and shouldn't be treated as such. Today, we will talk about how to include videos, audios, and printed authentic documents in the lesson, as there are different ways to approach each of them and include them in your activities. Let's start with videos. When selecting an authentic video for your classroom, you should first remember the rule of redundancy. If you are working with lower level students, The information being said or presented on screen should be supported by either subtitles in the target language or enough visual context for students to understand what is happening. Often, it can be hard to find authentic videos with subtitles in the target language, as native speakers wouldn't need them. Sometimes, closed captioning for hearing impaired listening can be helpful. 
As far as visual context is concerned, the location can be a great first indicator for students, as well as gestures of the people in the video. Think of it like someone saying hello and waving at the same time. When using videos, students should view the authentic piece at least three times, and sometimes more. The first time, they should be encouraged to look at what is happening in the video. You can even mute the audio track to help them focus on the images. Can they infer what the people are doing? What is the goal of the video? What information is presented? The first viewing should really be a scan for what they can pick up at first glance. This will be especially helpful if they run into a situation where they don't understand someone and need to rely on visual clues to find the meaning of the interaction. At that point, students are making an hypothesis. During the second viewing, the sound can be added to the video and students are confirming their hypothesis. Were they correct in their guesses? What else could they retain from the video? The third time the video is presented is when students should focus on accomplishing a task. Maybe at this point the teacher is asking them to make a list of the food items that are named in the conversation, or to write down the greetings that they hear. The important part of this third viewing is that students should be reminded that they're trying to pick up pieces of the video, not to understand all that is happening. Doing this type of targeted listening is also extremely helpful to gather meaning when a lot of input is being thrown at a student. Finally, the teacher should allow students to watch the video one or many more times to continue working on their task. They should not be expected to finish everything in the third viewing, as this again puts too much pressure on one listening instance and will be overwhelming for the learners. Following the sequence of multiple viewings when presenting a new video really helps with informing the students on how to tackle a material that can seem overwhelming at first. It is also helpful for them to know how to dissect a new piece of content. From video, let's move on to audio files. As we discussed in the last episode, ideally an authentic piece will have a high redundancy between audio and visual for lower level students. In the case of audio files such as podcasts, they might not be the best content for lower level students as they don't offer any visual support. A radio show that accompanies a news article with pictures might be a good alternative. But if we go back to our podcast, the listening steps mirror somewhat what is done with videos. In this case, the first listening should also be used to focus on the context as a whole. What is the topic of the audio file? What is the format? Is the audio file an interview? Is there any music or sound effects that help create a setting for the content piece? Outlining those first few elements allows the listener to get some bearing on what they're working with. If it is an interview, it is most likely a Q&A format. If it is a journalistic piece, there should be an event discussed with some repercussions. Again, the first listening is the moment for students to create a mental outline of the content. Upon the second listening, students should try to focus on words they know. Based on what they notice in their first listening, can they pick up on the topic of the audio piece? The second listening should be more targeted, and while still remaining general, it should serve as an information-gathering moment. Finally, similarly to what is done with video files, the third listening should be focused on the task at hand. Are students filling in the gap in the script of the interview? Are they creating a list of the question used by the interviewer? The third listening is a great moment to have them start focusing on parts of the audio experience.
Now, let's move on to print material. Again, with lower level, you should be using comic books, pamphlets, and sign, whereas with higher level students, you can work with articles and longer text. The important factor is to keep in mind that pure text-based content also needs to be approached in steps. Much like with audio and video files, the first reading should focus on determining what is being presented to the students. How can the title, subtitle, structure of the content and images help the student know what the text is about? Upon their first reading, they're looking for clues on what the text is about. Once they start reading for the second time, you could ask them to highlight words and expressions they know. This can be a strong exercise to help them see that they most likely know a lot more than they think. From there, does their hypothesis of the main idea of the text change? During the third reading, they can start working on the tasks they have to accomplish. All in all, using authentic material to introduce content and a task is a great way to expose students to more input than what they would get from more traditional classroom material. It also helps them build on the tolerance for ambiguity and develop strong skills to interact in situations above their proficiency levels. As they accomplish more and more tasks with the material in their class and work on multiple listening, viewing, and reading, they should be sent online to work on their own with new material. That way, they can try their new skills in a low-pressure situation before they're interacting directly with native speakers. For the second part of our podcast, we will discuss grammar instruction. Precisely, how to tie the principle we have seen with authentic material to grammar instruction. And even better, how to use authentic materials to present grammar structures. If you have been presenting grammar in a more traditional way, chances are that you are treating it explicitly. This means that you present the rules to the class, then they accomplish a few drills and apply the concept in a new task. This is a great way to clearly demonstrate the grammatical concept in isolation and is often what students are the most used to seeing in a language class. However, there is another way to present grammar concepts. It's called implicit instruction. Instead of providing the grammatical point to your students, they are instead asked to notice them in a context, make an hypothesis of what it can be, and then try writing out the rule. Let's say that you're learning to juggle. If you research online the steps required to go from throwing one ball in the air to then adding the second and finally to do it with all three balls, you're taking the path of explicit instruction. In that case, you're following a step-by-step -step model where the how-to is explained. However, if you look at a video online of someone juggling and work by trial and error to figure out how to do it, you're learning implicitly. Both methods work really well to introduce grammar, but they might appeal to different types of students. In this sense, it's a good idea to have a variety of types of instruction to make sure that all of your students are engaged. Let's talk about how this works with authentic material. Let's say that you want to introduce the imperative in class. You can search online for a government pamphlet about rules at the beach. There's some pictures, a small amount of text under each of them, and all the sentences are written in the imperative. Perfect. First, distribute the text to your students. In the first activity, tell them to look at the images and at the text. Can they find the verbs and highlight them all? Once they have highlighted the content, they can work in small groups to compare and see if they have the same answers. Then, tell them to observe the information that they have underlined and see if they can notice what is different about those verbs. From there, they could write down a more formal hypothesis. 
Finally, distribute another type of document or even a worksheet using similar verbs to see if they can fill them out based on the hypothesis they made and what they have noticed in the authentic material. The first part of the instruction is implicit. Up to this point, the students are the one providing the information and making sense of what is presented to them. If you think of this sequence of activity in a visual, it would be a lot like a funnel. The input starts very large with an entire text to review, but then gets narrowed down through different activities all the way to a much smaller input. To make the best out of this grammar lesson, I strongly suggest that you always follow your implicit instruction by explicit reinforcement. This allows students to confirm what they have noticed and reinvest the content in a new activity. Now that students have made an hypothesis, let's teach them the rules. At this point, they're confirming what they have observed and you're giving them the more traditional instruction on the formation of the imperative. After that, you can make your student work in teams to complete different worksheets to reinforce their understanding of the grammatical point. This would be your typical drill and practice activities. Finally, once you believe that they have a good grasp on the content, you present a new task where they have to reapply what they have learned in a different situation. If we stay with the same ideas of the rule at the beach, maybe they have to create posters for the rules of the classroom using sentences in the imperative. This last task is very important for them to reinvest their knowledge. This second explicit part of the lesson can be imagined like a pyramid. In this case, the input starts very narrow with the teacher giving out the rules. After that, students work on drill and practices until they create with the language, the widest part of the pyramid, as it is the larger output. Now, if we put all of this together, the two parts of our lessons can be imagined like an hourglass. You start with wide input from authentic material, narrow it down to the hypothesis and explicit rules, and then widen it again with a reinvestment task in a larger context. There you have it, implicit grammar instruction with explicit reinforcement. For some of you, it might seem like a long detour to give your students the grammar rules. However, there are some benefits to using implicit grammar instruction in the classroom. First, your students develop a stronger independence. They're not always relying on you to give them the information, and they start analyzing content through a more critical lens. Second, this type of discovery can appeal to different types of learners. It helps them switch how a typical classroom works and flips the traditional classroom model on its head. They are the one providing the information and working together to make some hypothesis. Finally, I wouldn't necessarily suggest to only do implicit instruction, as I strongly believe that your students benefit from learning the rules and practicing them. I also wouldn't suggest to do it all the time, as it does take longer. And if a rule can be explained in a few words, there's no reason to go through all of these steps. We talked about this type of instruction from a grammatical point of view, but it could also be used to notice how sentences are formed, different vocabulary patterns, and other syntax elements. And don't stop yourself at only using print authentic material. You can also do this with audio and video content. On this note, we can conclude today's episode of our podcast. If you have begun your curriculum map last week, you can go back and see if you can match some authentic material to your themes and can-do statements and pinpoint which of your grammatical concepts you could teach with implicit instruction. Don't forget to visit our webpage at resources.fueleducation.com forward slash podcasts to find some visual support for today's episode 
and a list of types of authentic material. In the next episode, we will talk about task-based learning and project-based learning. The Language Classroom is brought to you by Fuel Education. It is hosted by myself, André Anke. Find more information on Fuel Education and their large catalog of world language courses at fueleducation.com.